Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it, you love it. It, of course, is Victory Lane. And let me tell you, our guest here today was in Victory Lane. And as he knows, it's the place everybody wants to be this past weekend at Atlanta Motor Speedway. It is the spotter for Joey Logano, Coleman Presley is our guest today. He is a NASCAR Cup Series champion. He is a late model winner. He is a softball coach, also a champion in terms of that. We'll get into that in our conversation. Known Coleman for a handful of years. He is a great guy, an incredible spotter. And just listening to him on the radio in the closing stages of that race in Atlanta, I was thinking to myself, I was like, you know what? Haven't had a spotter on in a little bit. I think it'd be good to catch up with Coleman and have everybody hear what I know about Coleman, but I learned a whole heck of a lot too. So excited for you guys to hear that conversation. We'll chat a bit about Atlanta and preview Coda this weekend at Circuit of the Americas in Austin. But before we do any of that, it is episode 178, continuing our way back segment extravaganza. Papa Siegel is going to pay homage to the number 78, even though he did it once before. He's going to dig deep into his suitcase of courage if you know what i mean wink wink nudge nudge papa siegel what have you got for us today thank you Duve. welcome everyone to episode 178 last time through the numbers we made a rare exception to my no current drivers rule and shined our way back lens on martin truex jr and his championship winning furniture row team today we look back on the driver who has the second most starts in the 78 car. No, Doof, it's not B.J. McLeod. You may only know him as a pit reporter for Fox, but Regan Smith made 224 starts in the Cup Series, 120 of those coming in the 78 car. He won six times in the Xfinity Series and had one major victory at the Cup level. That came in 2011 at Darlington at the Southern 500. If you're going to win one cup race, that's not a bad one to pick, right? Smith held off Carl Edwards after a late restart to win the race, but our host likely remembers that race for something else. With four laps to go, Kevin Harvick, Kyle Busch, and Clint Boyer got together. Harvick got into Kyle who got into Boyer, who got into the wall. Bush then turned Harvick in frustration, and a legendary pit road confrontation ensued. Harvick tried to get Kyle out of the car, and when that didn't happen, Kevin started throwing haymakers inside of Bush's car. Bush drove off and pushed Harvick's 29 ride into the pit road wall. Tempers flared, Hauler visits ensued, fines and probations were issued, and Harvick and Bush became public enemies for years after that, though time and fatherhood seems to have mellowed both combatants now. Good times, eh, Duve? Back to you. 
Thank you, Dad. Yes, I remember that day very, very vividly. Uh, a couple things. So Kyle Bush has blocked me on Twitter for years, I think going on 13 or 14 years now. And if you do the math, 13 or 14 years ago was 2011 when that race happened because I think what I did was probably just tweet some dumb stuff to Kyle in my peak Kevin Harvick fanboy era. Um, and he subsequently blocked me on Twitter and I have been blocked ever since. So I'm waiting for the right opportunity that when I have an interview one-on-one -on -one with Rowdy, I'm going to basically be like, you know, hopefully the interview goes well. And then at the end, I'm going to say, hey, you know, I, uh, ha have you had a good time? Was this a good interview? You know, am I doing all right for you? He'd be like, yeah, you know, you're good. It's all good. I'm like, great. Can you unblock me on Twitter now? That's going to be a great moment and I can't wait for it. Uh, but anyways, I digress. So yeah, I remember that day. I will dispute one thing that you said though, dad. Kevin got out of the car. He went to Kyle's car. And no, he did not throw haymakers because if you watch the replay, he went to put his hand in there, presumably to grab Kyle's helmet or to begin to throw a haymaker. But then Kyle started driving away. And in doing so, he almost took Kevin's arm off. He pushed Kevin's car into the inside pit wall, which could have harmed a lot of people. And then Kyle drove away. Kevin's crew's running towards him. Visits to the hauler ensued, like he said, Dad. But that was a insanely memorable moment for me. It's, it is burned into the deep recesses of my brain. Again, being a big old Harvick fanboy back in the day. And to bury the lead, Regan Smith is the one who you paid homage to in this Wayback segment. He's the one who won the race on different tires for a really, really small team, way smaller than we're used to back when they won the championship. Furniture Row Racing beat out Carl Edwards to do so. I remember that was a huge moment, a huge day. And um, Kevin Harvick and Kyle Busch, they, they took the cake and they took the spotlight off of Regan Smith, which, hey, you know, you win some, you lose some. I, I think he will take the win for sure. And he's doing a great job now with Fox too. So maybe we'll get Regan on the show sometime soon so we can hear about his Fox escapades and maybe that fateful day in 2011 as well. And whenever I think of Regan Smith, I always think of that race that he was absolutely robbed in Talladega when he was driving the 01 car, went below the yellow line. Tony Stewart got the win. I still think that even though NASCAR made the right call, probably Regan Smith is the real winner of that race that day. But hey, I digress. Thank you, Dad, for paying homage to Regan. And let's start off this episode as we always do. With a good old-fashioned <laughs> and throw it straight over to my interview with Coleman Presley again he is a champion he is the current spotter of the 22 team Penske Ford in the NASCAR Cup Series he is a very interesting fella and I say that about pretty much everybody that we have on the show but Coleman is obviously no different had a very illustrious driving career has now parlayed that into a successful, illustrious, and championship-winning spotting career with his best friend and his best man, Joey Logano. Get into some tales of how they became friends, fast friends at that, pun intended, uh, and growing up together, living together when they were both teenagers as Joey was starting off his Cup Series career. Some good stories there, so stay tuned for that. Also, you may recognize the last name if you don't know Coleman. It's because his father is Robert. Presley, the longtime Bush Series competitor, ran in the Cup Series as well, and is now moonlighting as a hot dog salesman. I shouldn't even say moonlighting because that's that's what he does. That that's his gig right now. Uh, so I'm excited for you guys to hear this chat with Coleman again. 
A lot of layers to this guy. He is an onion and he's a jack of all trades, as he says. And we started off the conversation talking about racing and softball. I'll let you hear for yourself. Here's my chat with Spider for the 22, Coleman Presley. Pleasure to welcome on to the show today, race winner at Atlanta Motor Speedway. And more importantly, even though he has a championship under his belt, I have learned that he is a state title winning softball coach. You know him, you love him. It is Coleman Presley. Hello, Mr. Winner on the NASCAR side and on the softball side. How are you doing today? Doing great. Excited to be in here to celebrate a win. That's always fun. All right, so who cares about the win? Let's talk softball. You were telling me that you, uh, you're the coach for your daughter. You're like, I got softball practice later. I was like, oh, I didn't know you are in a league. And he said, no, I'm a coach for my daughter. So give us the deets. Where do you guys play? How many fans are allowed in the stadium? And, and now it's going to be decked out in 22 gear. I know it. Yeah, yeah. So we're up here in Asheville, North Carolina. This is this is where home base has always been for me. So my wife, the athlete, the family, and I'm the kind of the mental coach of the group. I'm a father of four girls, so I kind of got to be mentally strong. So yeah. Uh, yeah, I joined in coaching softball, and and it's kind of fun to to learn new traits. And honestly, it probably helps you a little bit for the racetrack to stay patient. I'm sure. How long have you been coaching for? Uh, this is now my second year's coaching her softball team. Last year I did my older daughter's team. And like you said, they went on and won the 10 U state championship, in North Carolina. So that's pretty cool. And, and now we're trying to back it up with an eight U championship this year with my uh, second oldest daughter. So last year you won the 10 U state championship and the cup series championship all in a year's work, huh? Yeah. I mean, it's a tough to get it, man. You gotta, you gotta work hard to get those, get those championships. So, uh, honestly, it's hard to say which one was even cooler. Cause you know, on the racing side, we expect to win on the coaching side. Uh, right. I just happy to win a game. <laughs> well, you clearly are doing very well at both. Let's get into the race win at Atlanta. Like you mentioned, uh, I'm sure you've heard it from a lot of people by now, but I was listening to your radio and Brad's radio with TJ it's just mesmerizing what you guys do on these super speedway racetracks, whether it's Atlanta, Talladega, Daytona, just listening to you guys paint the picture. And given that you're a former driver, I know TJ did a little bit back in his day too. It almost feels like you guys are driving the car when it comes down to the ends of these races and positioning your driver where he needs to be, when he needs to be there. Take us through the final couple laps, you battling with Brad and how you wound up getting the W. Yeah, you know, first and foremost, I, I think TJ would speak for this too. Like having a very capable driver on the super speedway makes a huge difference. But what it also allows us to do is, you know, to to study them, study uh, their tendencies, talk to them, see what they can see, what they can't see. And I, I know for me working with Brad, Brad was kind of that first catalyst that made me a good super speedway spotter, just breaking down um, what the air does, what certain moves does, uh, and then kind of piggyback that moving over to Joey last year, like just kind of taking that to the next level. So, uh, the final laps was, was really cool. You know, Atlanta's kind of that ish super speedway. It's not quite a super speedway, but it's pack racing. Um, so we're, we're still kind of new at it and understanding exactly what each move does, but, uh, it was kind of cool to see, you know, what Brad had in his arsenal and, and the conversations I've had with him in the past about kind of understanding what his next move is going to be. And then obviously him and Joey's worked together a lot, so they know each other's moves. So it was it was truly a game of chess. You know, like I feel like that's 
always said when we go super speedway racing, it's a, it's a chess game, but like this was as good of a chess game as you can get. You got two drivers that get each other spotters that understand each driver spotters that understand the other drivers. So it was a, it was a cool experience to, to get that win. Yeah. You said you, you obviously work with Brad before and he kind of taught you the ropes and what to do and what not to do in terms of spotting on a super speedway. I knew that. So in the back of my mind, when I'm watching you guys battle it out, I'm thinking to myself, all right, well, TJ's work with Joey. Joey's work with TJ. Coleman's work with Brad. Brad's work with Coleman. Now they're on the other side of things. Do you think that knowing Brad's tendencies at all, and even TJ's to a certain extent, you think that gave you and Joey maybe the upper hand? I, I guess you could say the opposite for TJ and Brad, but you guys wind up on top. Yeah. I mean, it never hurts, but you know, you go into a week, especially a super speedway race, like you're always analyzing your competition, trying to find trends and certain moves that they do like, you know, when in doubt, which lane do they cover? So, um, I, I wouldn't say I, that, you know, we as a group understood Brad and TJ any more than what we think we do anyone else. It's just, uh, uh, you've been on the other side of the radio with it. So you kind of know what their first reaction is going to be naturally instead of just studying it. So, it was uh, it was cool. It was a special win for us. Yeah, it was really special for Joey, obviously. He was talking about how he lived at Atlanta Motor Speedway for a handful of years. You are not too dissimilar. Uh, we saw some footage of both of you guys back when you were youngins, baby face, clean shaven, uh, before braces and all that good stuff when you were racing Legends cars and stuff. So I know that you had some racing at Atlanta. I don't know the extent compared to Joey, but I imagine that this win for you as well had to be pretty special given your history at that track too. Yeah, for sure. So uh, actually, I think somewhere right here behind me, I got the 2000 or no, excuse me, I'm way old, 1999 Georgia P-State champion in Bandoleros. So that's kind of my claim to fame in Georgia winning a winter heat series in that in Atlanta and Bandoleros. So um but no, it's special more than anything. Just, you know, me and Joey share such a special relationship being close to each other, almost like brothers. And, and I knew going in, like winning at Atlanta was one of his like high priorities on his list to accomplish just because he never has. And, and the history that he has there. So it was cool to, to help be a part of that and, and to help bring that to him. Um, but man, we had a lot of good battles on that quarter mile. Um, the, the video that you're referring to is actually during the nationals events there. So, okay. uh, I'm pretty certain Joey won that year and I finished third and, uh, I, going back through some old pictures, it's pretty cool to see some of the faces, you know, Drew Herring was in the top five. We all got a picture together. Now he spots for true X. Mm-hmm. Um, you got people like Brandon McReynolds, Kyle Griss, um, um, people that are still around now and, and that we grew up with, it's, it's cool to look back and reminisce on that, but then also be able to talk about it today with each other. So I was going to get into it later, but you kind of led me there. Your relationship with Joey is a very interesting one because you guys have been really close, best friends. You're the best man at his wedding. You guys have been attached at the hip for a really, really long time. And you're obviously spotting for him. Now you're working together, but that wasn't the case for a while, and I read in a couple places in previous conversations that we've had, you guys were very weary of mixing the professional life with the personal life, and you didn't really want to get your friendship involved with the professional side of things. Obviously, when Joey moved on from TJ, he moved to Brad, that left an opening for you. I guess my question is, at that point in time, what changed in the mindset that you guys held of saying, well, I know that we got this relationship outside of the track. Let's Let's make it a marriage on the track as well. It's clearly paid off, but back then, what changed in terms of the mindset for you? Uh, I think more than anything, it's just the 
the work-life maturity that we had at that point. Now he'd already had his championship. I wasn't, you know, spotting for lower tier teams like I was when I first started out. And, and I had the opportunity to go win some like high pressure cup races and, and, and one be plugged into the Penske organization and understand like the flow of how that organization works and what's expected of the spotter. Um, so honestly, just kind of turned perfect time. I would say just mature enough to accept that, you know, we're both really good at what we do. Uh, we both take our jobs really seriously and, and always trying to be better at it. Um, I, I think once we kind of, kind of reached that level where we said, Hey, we can, we can separate it and, and do good things and, you know, still have fun on the radio too. That's, uh, that was the, the last leap of faith that we took. And, you know, obviously last year being the first full-time season that we were together, like the first thing we said was, why do we wait so long? So, uh, uh, it's well worth the wait and you know joey's gonna be around for a long time i hope to be around for a long time so uh, i hope this is the start of many big wins and big championships yeah now that i think back on it you guys' first race together at the clash you wound up winning that thing so clearly why were you waiting so long right yeah yeah it's a it's a tough one to get to but once you climb that mountain it's easy to say why not yeah that's true that's true um i'm curious going into last year you know given that you guys had had reached that mutual understanding of, you know, we know how to separate things. We know that we're in agreement that we're going to try to do this. And, you know, if it works great, if it doesn't, it's not really going to affect our friendship off the track. Did that give you any pause? Were you nervous at all going in? Besides the fact that it's just a new professional venture for you, it was a leap of faith on both of your parts. Uh, yeah, I wasn't really nervous about the whole relationship side. And my biggest nerves was, you know, Joey's a winner. Joey's a champion. Uh, I didn't want to be the guy that, you know, went to work for him and then he did less. Uh, I wanted to to bring something to the table. I wanted to challenge him. Um, you know, as, as close as me and Joey are, I like to say I'm probably his biggest critic and he's probably my biggest critic too. We just uh, do it at a time and place where it's beneficial for both of us and, and don't you know, announce it to the world all over the radios and stuff. But, um, yeah, he definitely challenges me to, 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 to want to be better, to, to study harder, to, to want to do more. And, and I feel like I do the same thing for him. Um, but on top of that, like, you know, we have a really good team with Paul and, and Paul's a leader and he allows us both to have kind of a long leash to, to be more of a, a leader on the team and, and be a part of the team. I think that you guys probably have the field beat in this area, but in terms of the bond and, and the relationship that the driver and spotter have off the racetrack on it, that's one thing, you know, you got to be in tandem attached at the hip, that type of thing on the same page. But how important do you think the spotter driver relationship is off track to then have that trust over the radio on track? Uh, as far as trust goes, the biggest trust I can do is Joey lets me babysit his kids. So if he can trust me with his kids, he can, he can trust me with his life and his race cars. So uh, that's what we always say. But, you know, like for us, like we're lucky in the fact that, you know, not only are Joey and I really close together and, and good friends, our, our wives are best friends and our wives get along and our kids get along. So, um, you know, ultimately you realize as you get older in life, that like you start counting a lot less friends or true friends on your hands. Um, mm -hmm. and, and lucky for us that, you know, both ourselves and our wives get along. We can vacation together. We can, uh, we can go to each other's house, show up unannounced. Um, you know, this year in particular, like my wife's been at his wife's house on two Sundays and, and they live in Mooresville and we're in Asheville. They travel two hours here. They've been here once or twice. 
Um, Bristol's coming up. They usually always come up and spend the weekend with us at uh, Bristol weekend because it's shorter drive over from Asheville. So, um, yeah, we, we make a habit of, of making the off-track bonding important, but we don't do it to be better on the racetrack. We just do it because we're family and we do care for each other. So my question is, you've babysat his kids. Is he too busy and too much of a hotshot two-time cup champ to babysit yours? No, I tell you what. So it used to be a lot easier to be able to like drop one of my kids off at his house for the weekends. I'd fly out on uh -huh. a Friday and and drop a kid off and pick it back up on Sunday. Uh, but that's when he only had one or two kids. Now he has three starting to catch up to mm. me a little bit more. I can't just drop them off unannounced. But no, they're uh, they're really great with my kids. And and you know it's it's always Uncle Joey and Aunt Brittany over there at their house. So <laughs> uh, they're always welcome at their house as much as their kids are welcomed here. I love it. So I know that you guys obviously have raced together and that's, that's where the, kind of the relationship was formed, but take me back to those days, whether it's in the Bandoleros at Atlanta on that quarter mile or even before, I know you guys go way back to those babyface days, but take me inside baseball a little bit. And when you guys first met, forged a relationship and obviously grew from there, but when it first started, where, when, who, what, how, give me the deets. Um, so we first really got to racing with each other. I guess we had to be six or seven years old racing bandoleros on the front stretch at Charlotte and Atlanta. And, and you know, obviously it was the, the awkward moments of talking to each other in the driver's meeting, um, walking by each other, waving. But most of the time, Joey kicked our hind ends. And, and you never really wanted to go up and talk to someone that just got done, you know, pushing your face in the dirt and beating you. Um, yeah. So, you know, we always kind of hung out and, and it kept it casual. Honestly, it wasn't until, you know, I graduated high school, I left Asheville, moved to Charlotte to, to try to pursue a racing career, either driving or working on cars. And at that time, you know, here he is, an 18-year-old going into the Cup Series, and he moved out of his mom and dad's house, and he was looking for a roommate to, to I don't know if it was to protect him from the, from the boogeyman or if it was for <laughs> uh, uh, just a company or what. But, um, yeah, me and him just said, hey uh, – um, you want to move in? So I moved in the, the bedroom on the other side of the house and, and kind of had it made, you know, I wasn't traveling full time. I got this nice house to myself on the weekends. He was there a couple of days a week. And, um, you know, from there, it just kind of blossomed. We just, you know, generally just started caring for each other and, and cared about like what was best. He helped me in some situations when I was trying to decide whether, you know, I wanted to continue driving or, or the crew chief path or the spotting path. He's kind of always been that that go-to to give me uh, the, the push and the information that I need and, and, and what he thought I should do. So, um, you know, just, just showing real feelings and emotions and, and sharing stuff like he's your brothers is what led to us being as close as we were. I had that in my notes that you guys were roommates. I wasn't sure exactly the time frame. So thank you for clearing that up. I guess my question to that would be what kind of roommate was Joey Logano when he was still an 18 year old kid getting his feet wet in the cup series. I'd, I'd pay to see some of that footage. Yeah. You know what? Me and him, we're, we're not your typical 18 year old guys. We're, we're quite frankly, we're nerds. Um, so <laughs> we wasn't really necessarily out chasing women or, or, or doing all that stuff, partying. Uh, most of our nights consisted of playing, you know, ping pong, foosball, going, firing up the old supercross motocross game on the playstation 2 oh yeah racing world of outlaws on that we had a little season set so it was a, it was a lot of nerd activities that you wouldn't expect out of sub 21 year olds 
I love it. I love it though. That that that's what everybody loves, right? Everybody thought of Joey back then as this hot shot kid coming into the 20 car and obviously had his struggles and stuff like that. People didn't at that time at least see, realize or hear about the off-track Joey and he was still then a teenager and you were just a couple years older trying to find your way in the sport as well. It must have been nice to have a friend like that to to your point to lean on whether it's for personal advice, professional advice, but also now for that to come full circle you were with him kind of at his low points in the Cup Series when he was struggling at first. You helped build him back up, and now you're a Cup champion with him. That has to be a, a pretty cool full circle moment that you can look back on. It is, for sure. You know, we've uh, you got to experience the highest of highs and the lowest of lows together, and the highest of highs mm-hmm. are a lot more fun. So, um, <laughs> you know, now we know what to, to expect and how to get to that level, and, and that's what we want to continue to build. We don't want to, we don't want to, you know, plateau or anything like, you know, the saying that he created this year was never enough, and that's never enough work, never enough effort, never enough of anything to, to be better. So we had 22 and 22. Now it's never enough. We need 22 and 23. Save some for the rest of us, Joey. Come on. <laughs> so I want to ask you about your spotting career a little bit more. Um, obviously, you spotted for Brad. You now spot for Joey. I know before that, you spotted for, I think it was A.J. Allmendinger back in the day. Was there anybody else before A.J. or in between when you got to Penske? Yeah, so um, my first ever cup race spotting was for A.J. Allmendinger at the Daytona 500. That was my first ever foray into the Cup Series. Wow. Welcome um, to the club. Yeah, right. Here you go. Here you go, kid. Figure it out. So uh, before that, like I did dabble in it a little bit. I did some standalone for Brad's truck team. I think uh, I spotted for Tyler Reddick once or twice when he first started in the Truck Series with Brad's at the standalone events. Um, my very first spot and opportunity was for Johanna Long. I did her, uh, five or six races in that old 70 Xfinity car back in the day. Last so the past, yeah. 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 So that was a lot of fun, but you know, at that point I was just trying to, to earn enough money to, to be able to go out and buy a set of tires for my late model. It wasn't a full-time gig. It was, uh, I'll go spot, make some money, give some advice and, and go back and race my late model the next weekend since it isn't full-time. It, it wasn't until, you know, I guess it was 2016 that Tad Geschechter called me and, and looking for a spotter for AJ that, you know, I, I made it serious to, to make a career out of it. Do you feel like at peace with where you're at right now in terms of the spotting side of things? Because we'll get into your driving career and you had a lot of success there. Still do, by the way, with the fall brawl. We'll get to that, too. But do you feel kind of at peace with where you're at right now professionally in terms of within the sport? hundred percent. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a spotter until, you know, they tell me not to spot no more. Um, I love it. You know, as a driver, um, I always tell people I didn't feel like I put enough effort into it to be really good at it. And and once I kind of lost that opportunity, I regretted not putting as much effort into it as I did. So now from my spotting career, like I put over enough effort into it to make sure I'm always prepared for something, uh, always trying to grow, um, you know, never settling for not being, you know, a high level spotter. Um, and on top of that, I can do that with younger drivers that I work with, like in the truck series, you know, in the, in the press previous years, I've worked with Todd Gillen for two years this year. I'm working with Tanner gray and I'm kind of experience, give them my experience of a film. Like I didn't do enough to do, take advantage of the opportunity opportunity and uh you know show them you know what a high level cup guy looks at and and try to be a little stepping stone in their career when did you realize that you were good at it 
Because a lot of people get into spotting, whether it's by happenstance or they stumble into it or, hey, we need somebody to to spot the S's at Watkins Glen. Here's a headset. When did you realize that you were actually good at it and you enjoyed it? Um, Yeah, I think, you know, once you got that first win, you kind of said, OK, I can do this. I don't know if I'm great at it yet, but I can do this. Um, you know, just compliments from people you know people like aj when i first started like he gave me compliments and i knew he'd heard some of the best spotters over the radio through his cup career um i would say my my moment when i said okay you can make a career out of this and be considered really good is probably when i got the call from brad to, to come interview over at penske to to come work there uh, obviously if you can get a call from from the Penske group at any position, like you're at a high level at your position. So I would say from there is when I said, okay, you could be really good at this. And and then once I got to work with Brad, like he's just so good at challenging you and making you a better, uh, a better person at your job. Um, so yeah, from that point on in 2019, I felt pretty confident that, you know, I could make a, a successful career out of this. So what you're six or seven years into spotting now, is this your seven? I uh, started in 2016. I'm not great at math. What is that like? This would be your eight then. Eight so this would year. be your eight. Yeah, yeah, eight does years. Does it feel that long? Um, some days it does. <laughs> Whenever you're out there in the summer stretch <laughs> in June or July, it's like, man, I've been doing this for a long time. It uh, it comes natural, but then you look back on it, and, you know, especially over the last four or five years where you've got to celebrate a lot of cool wins. Uh, that goes pretty fast, and it's pretty easy to. Uh, forget it or not remember the moment. So um, that's what I always try to do now. You never know when your last win's going to be. So I try to soak them all in. So I want to go back to the the driving days a little bit. Obviously your last name, Presley, that's famous in the NASCAR circles and in motorsports. Your dad, Robert was killing it back in the day. Uh, I think it's fair to say that, you know, growing up around the racetrack like you did and with Bob and your family too, racing was always going to be it, right? There was never anything else on the table you grew up around race cars. You grew up at the racetrack. So racing always was going to be the avenue that you went down, I would assume. 100%. Yeah, I uh, I grew up in a motor home in the DO lot. So uh, I still went to public <laughs> school. But as soon as the Friday bell rang, we uh, got on an airplane and, and went to the racetrack. And, you know, my Fridays, Saturdays and Sundays wasn't at a ball field or it wasn't, you know, going to a Friday night football game. Uh, it wasn't hanging out with my friends and, and getting in trouble. And like it was hanging out at the racetrack. Uh, once I got old enough, I was sitting on the pit box with the crew chief, writing lap times down on a notepad because we didn't have, you know, digital scoring at that time. Um, so just all in on, on racetrack and it's all I knew. So, uh, yeah, there's never a doubt in the world that I wouldn't be involved at some point in racing. And, and lucky for me, like with my dad being the cup series, there's connections to, to help me get that. Yeah. So go-karts, bandoleros, legends, late models. I think at one point in time, you might still have the record. I don't know. You you were the youngest winner in Hickory Motor Speedway history, which had to be a pretty awesome record to have given the the awesome history of that racetrack and all the, the Hall of Famers, past, present, future that have raced on that track. When did you realize that you were good at driving? Because even at that point, you know, being as young as you were, Clearly, you were getting opportunities in certain equipment, and you were beating a lot of drivers that were really good at their respective craft. When did you realize that you had it on the driver's side of things? Um, I think it's probably my third year in late models, so around 2007, 8, 9. Uh, we were starting to travel around, leaving Hickory, going to Greenville, Myrtle Beach. 
Um, there's a, a tour called the UARA series back then that was a traveling late model series. Once I kind of started venturing out, racing against the best at their particular racetrack and actually being able to either compete for wins or win the race, um, that's when, you know, my dad sat me down and said, hey, you got a real opportunity to, to be something special. You just got to keep after it, you know, going into to someone else's home base and, and being able to run at a high level with them is an important trait to do. And you're going to have to do that once you reach, you know, the cup series, because it's the best 40 guys that go to a new track every week and you got to be on top of your game. So I would say right around that time, I, uh, I, uh, felt pretty confident that, you know, I had the talent to do it, but you know, unfortunately things didn't line up and it was right around that time that the economy bust and there wasn't sponsorships yeah. going like candy. So, um, there's a lot of good drivers. It wasn't just me that didn't get the break. I was looking at your racing reference page and I forgot that your first six races in the Xfinity series for JTG Doherty racing six in a row were DNFs and not all of them were your fault. Obviously there was some engine issues, some mechanical issues, got caught up in other people's messes that had to be just absolutely gut wrenching to have that opportunity in front of you. Finally get to a point where, all right, I've paid my dues on the local side of things. I'm getting my chance in an Xfinity car. And then not just the first couple of times, but six in a row, Coleman, you, you didn't finish the race. How, how was that feeling for you back then? Well, you know what? It's not as bad as it sounds because uh, I had a good sense of humor and I'll tell you why those Please. first six races start in parks. So that's when the starting part was a really big deal. So we were making money. But I say I had a good sense of humor because they used to ask you, there'd be an official as soon as you pull off the racetrack saying, you know, what was your issue today? And like you throw out something like, oh, I got tired and I had to pit. Um, my, my, I was running hot. Uh, I pulled the old cold <laughs> trickle. I believe it was the radiator. Uh, so yeah, those first five or six are all starting parts. But, you know, I was also lucky to be able to do those because, um, at that time, testing was washed up. You couldn't go out and test really as, as much as you'd need to as a young driver. So Tad Geschechter, instead of uh, shutting down his Xfinity program, he just decided to start and park the second half of the year after Michael McDowell left. And that allowed me time to actually practice. Like he'd give me a set of tires for practice. I'd go out and run 40, 50 laps in practice, just get to, to know the racetrack, know the flow of everything. Um, get to qualify like there's a couple times I, I remember at richmond i think we qualified like in the top eight or ten or something with a starting park car so i'm up there Man. you know next kyle bush and brad <laughs> and joey and that was kind of cool um funny story like i think it's probably my it might have been my first ever xfinity race at iowa as a starting park driver uh, i got to ride in the back of the truck with kyle bush so like going around driver introduction i'm in the back of the truck with kyle bush waving we get to the back straightaway and uh it's no fans back there and, and i looked at him and i said man you better be glad i'm not running this full race today and he looked at me like who the heck are you man and never <laughs> He's said like, a what's word. your name so, yeah that's my that's my one conversation with kyle bush so oh um, man yeah so but you know looking back at it like it sucked not to race and, and go out there and race but it was a good opportunity for get, for me to get experience in a heavier car yeah. All right. Well, thank you for clearing that up. I did not know that because I saw different reasons on racing reference. So I figured that it was actually stuff that happened. But I guess that makes sense. You give a reason when you park the car. Now that I think about it, I mean, today in this day and age, you know, starting parks aren't a thing because 
there's barely any practice and qualifying and back when there was COVID, you know, the metric and all that stuff. But even before COVID from, you know, 2016 to 19 or so, it seems like the era of Starton Parks really just kind of went away and vanished into thin air. Do you know if there was kind of one concrete reason for that? Or was it kind of a confluence of a bunch of different things, you know, the market included, obviously, and teams not being able to afford taking out a car just to start and park? Yeah, I think it's a lot of different reasons. You know, uh, the market got better, so more sponsorship opportunities come available. Um, it was easier to make money racing at that point if you could sell sponsorship. Uh, the charter systems obviously helped a lot with that. Sure. Uh, a, a little bit of everything, but you know, for for as much bashing as the Start and Park system got back in the day, it also, like I said, presented some opportunities for people like me to, to you know, yeah. make a living. Like you're still getting paid to go out there and drive a race car, get experience. Um, so it, it wasn't all negative. There's a, there's a lot of Start and Park drivers that are you know made it as Cup drivers now. Yeah, I mean Ross Chastain, Landon Castle, who still is dealing with some financial issues in terms of sponsorship, but all these guys that starting parked one day are now, you know, winning races at the cup series level the next. So I, I totally agree with you there. So continuing the deep dive into racing reference, then, uh, some other Xfinity results, you ran for Robert Richardson's team. I did not remember that you ran for junior motorsports. Um, that was interesting when I saw that, I think your best finish was 12th in Nashville back when that track was on the schedule and then it went away and now it's obviously back. As you mentioned, you know, when, when the economy kind of took a downturn, things dried up for you and a lot of other people. I assume that if there's kind of one answer as to why you're driving and your racing career kind of stopped and stalled at that point, it would have to be the financial aspect of things. Yeah, I'd say that's probably the biggest thing. Um, you know, going back, talk about the Robert Richardson Jr. stuff. Like I got three races with them. That's all it was supposed to be. Um, and, and so the schedule I picked was Bristol, Richmond, Darlington. Um, so Bristol um, qualified bad. And raced really well. I have a picture of me restarting fifth in that 23 car. And I think I was running, you know, inside the top 10 with like 20 to go and come off turn four and made a rookie mistake and wrecked. Um, then I went to, to Richmond and had a really good run. Uh, I think I run, you know, right around 10th all night. I just got lapped early and could never get on the lead lap and, and ended up finishing, I don't know, somewhere around 13th, 15th, something like that. Um, but that caught the eye of, of Dell Jr., who was, you know, replacing Kelly Byers in the 88 at the time. So conversations kind of started, hey, we got to fill in these standalone events. We'd like to give you an opportunity. Um, so it was probably single-handedly the best thing and worst thing that ever happened in my career was going to drive the 88. You know, with the, the 23, like we were exceeding expectations. That car was meant to run like 25th uh, on a weekly basis. And we going out there and putting up results in the top 15 in it and, and running inside the top 10 sometimes um, to then get an opportunity to go drive the 88 where like big picture, it was, you know, a great car because Brad had a lot of success in it the previous two years. Um, but, you know, Brad left and, and it seemed like the organization kind of fell behind a little bit. Um, like I think looking back at it, like the finish I had at Nashville there in 12th place, Besides the Super Speedway event, that was the best finish that car had had that season up to that point. So um, I kind of got labeled as uh, not being able to take a car to the next level. And it really hurt my confidence a lot. And and I always look back and say, you know, that's a hard thing to turn down. You, you never want to turn down the opportunity to drive like an elite level car because, I mean, at that time you didn't know that they were kind of in the struggle they were in. Um, but I wish I would have maybe – 
thought about it a little bit more and, and try to settle for more lower tier rides and exceed expectations, kind of like the Ross Chastain approach. Um, but it didn't work out. And, and ultimately, like I said earlier, it's what turned me into being a better spotter. Yeah, that's really interesting. I guess looking back on it, would you have done anything differently then? Because like you said, it's kind of an impossible opportunity to turn down, but best and worst thing that's ever happened to you in your driving career, that's that's saying a lot. Yeah, I, you know, I probably wouldn't have turned down the opportunity. You can't turn it down. Uh, I wish I'd have put more effort into it. You know, at, at that point, um, at that point, I was still working full time at JTG Racing. I was building shocks, working on the setup plate. So I was kind of juggling a full time job and a driving job. Uh, I probably wish I would have focused 100 percent more on the driving aspect of it. Um, but I didn't, you know, at that point, like I was a, I was a working race car driver and, and, you know, I've always respected the fact that my dad made me work on my own stuff and, and learn how to work on these things. Cause, uh, it gave me a lot of opportunities after my driving career. I was going to say time Jeski, you were on the time Jeski plan. It sounds like time Jeski right now at Thor sport is on the Coleman Presley plan. I didn't know yeah. that you were working in the shop at JTD during that time too. Is that the time when you were starting parking as well? I presume. Yep, I was starting parking on uh, on the weekends, tearing down on Mondays, building shocks on Tuesdays, and setting up on Wednesdays. Um, and, and then, you know, the next year the Xfinity program shut down, but I continued to still work there. Um, I was gluing lug nuts for pit practice and, and driving the pit stop car and working on special projects. And then in the afternoon, I drive over to Junior Motorsports or R3 Motorsports and, and you know, try to hang out with the guys when I can and understand what I needed to do. And, and I was just juggling a million different things. But uh, it, it still made me the man I am today, uh, you know, those experiences. So I don't regret any of them. I just wish I maybe would have handled it a little bit more. Um, sure. but, but who said I'd have been a great race car driver if I did? So it's all worked yeah. out spotter driver pit stop driver lug nut gluer chassis specialist shock maker i mean you've held every job in the book it sounds like when it comes to a race team coma what haven't you done yeah jack of all trades master of none until spotters so <laughs> there you go and softball coach can't forget that. and softball coach yes yes um so your dad, obviously, it, it's obvious to say that he's been instrumental in your career, whether it's behind the wheel or atop the spotter stand. Back when you were driving on a more regular basis, specifically, you know, when you were competing on the late model scene and when you're working your way up to the Bandoleros, Legends, etc., how involved was he? Because there's a difference between instrumental in something and being involved. So I'm curious how, you know, plugged in he was each and every week and each and every race. Yeah, when we first started through Bandoleros and Legends, um, you know, he was there, uh, but at that point he was, you know, right in the middle of his cup series career and, and, you know, maybe not at a high level championship contending, but like he was in the mix of it, like at NASCAR in it's prime in my eyes. And like, it's right around the time appearances got big testing was big. So like he was gone a lot, but he always made an effort to be there every Tuesday. He would drive the hauler, work on it with me there. Um, so, you know, he got me started. And then once we reached the late model level, his career started dwindling down. Uh, he actually retired a year earlier than he wanted to. So like me and him could build a late model car together. And, you know, that those years between 2005 and 2010, when we were at the peak of our late model race, and uh, it was me and him um, obviously had some family friends volunteer, had, you know, two, three guys that come over at night and help us out and, and go to the racetrack with us. And it was, uh, it was, hard time because me and my dad are both a lot alike and we're hard-headed and we want to be right all the time um so there's a 
there's a lot of clashing amongst each other, but uh, there was clashing because we both knew the level that we, you know, could be at at a short track level and, and what we had expected at a short track level. Like when we rolled through a gate, like we expected to win. And if we didn't, then, you know, we were going to figure out why and, and we were going to fix it. And um, sometimes fixing it wasn't always the easiest thing to do because it, it yeah. exchanged the harsh words amongst each other. But uh, everything's good. I still live next door to my dad. I built a house right next door to him. Uh, I see him every day. He's over here on his tractor at least once a week, tearing up something in my yard. Um, so yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't be the man I am or the racer I am today without him. I love that. That's great. Well, you talked about winning and you guys are hard headed, but those hard heads combined for a lot of wins back in the day for you. Uh, and you still do it to this very day. Uh, the fall brawl last year at Hickory, I think it was around Thanksgiving time or so 2022, I remember I, I saw on Twitter, because you don't tweet that much, but I remember you tweeted that you were racing, and I was like, oh, that's cool, you know? I know he used to race a lot, but he doesn't do it a ton nowadays, but that's cool. He's getting back behind the seat. Next thing I know, I'm seeing pictures of you in Victory Lane, and Joey is spotting for you in Victory Lane as well. Take me back to just that day as a whole and, and being back in the race car, and then when the race was going on and you, you got the lead and you wound up winning the race, what, what were the emotions and the feelings that you had that day and that night? I was so pumped at crossing the finish line winning. Um, I hadn't raced in eight years since I started spotting. Yeah. Um, so I, the, the beginning of the day, let me just say it was humbling because I couldn't fit in my old race suit. Like I got my spotter body and I put on a lot of extra pounds. I couldn't oh, even fit my old race suit. So I had to use one of my dad's old race suits. So the, <laughs> the first part of it was humbling. Uh, once I got in the race car, like it all come back pretty naturally. Like I feel like by my second or third lap on the racetrack, I, I felt like what I, I needed to feel. I felt like I, my speed was there. Um, and then typical Coleman Presley fashion, I go out and qualify bad. I, I suck as a qualifier. I sucked eight years ago. I still suck. Um, Good. yeah, once the race started, like it was cool to, to work your way through the field. And like, I've always felt like I've, I've been a great, you know, tire manager, taking care of my equipment, recognizing, but it's cool to see like, you know, the prep that you put in on the cup stuff and the stuff you look in the cup series, how much better it made me as a driver. And, and then, like you said, having Joey spotting for me, like that was such a cool experience. Uh, I felt like he kind of got to see some of the challenges that I face as a spotter, whether it be angles or, or dealing with multiple things going on at a time. Uh, and at the same point, I got to see a lot of things he dealt with, like how little you can see out of these race cars and, and how good yeah. he is at making these quick reaction moves. So it was a good science project. Uh, it probably made us a better, even better driver spotter pair. That's really the first time it's happened. The, the other two times that he spotted for me, we've either broke or wrecked out. And, uh, so he was a little nervous about coming in and, and, you know, making my re debut a, a mess and, and crashing out. But, uh, it worked out perfect. It was special. Uh, I'm on a diet now. I'm down 20 pounds. I'm going to try to get another 15 well off to fit in an old race suit. And, uh, yeah, so I, I'm trying to get on the invite list for the North Wilkesboro Cars Race. So I'm on the list. They're narrowing Ooh. it down to 10 invitees. So this podcast, make sure you send to the Cars Tour and Dale Jr. that you want to see Coleman Presley race. I got you, and Cars Tour, North Wilkesboro, Dale Jr., whoever needs to watch this, if you're watching and if you're listening, the last time Coleman Presley was in a race car, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, he won, and he's a champion on the racetrack on top of the spotter stand. He's a champion on the softball field. Why would you not want this man in the field, huh? Here you right. go. Made your pitch Mary for you. Port tracker. 
That's right. America's short track racer. The when you did win that race and when you crossed that finish line, did it sink in in that moment or did it take a couple days to realize like, all right, I hadn't done this in eight years. I always knew that I was like good. Okay. But to not do it for almost a full decade, come back and win in a big marquee race like that. I mean, that's a, that's a big deal. You don't need to hear it from me because you heard it from plenty of people, but that is a really, really big accomplishment. Yeah, it, it sunk in instantly. Like once I come off turn four, knew I had to win. I matted it and just spun the tires all the way down the front straight away. Attaboy. Uh, I didn't have time to key the radio and celebrate because Joey was already on it and he was pumped up more than he was for winning the <laughs> championship the week before. Uh, so my celebration was I got to do a pretty badass donut. So uh, my dad never let me do burnouts as a kid because I'd wear and tear the motor. But you know this was a special one and I burned oh, it yeah. down, and it was cool to. While I was doing burnouts, my kids were standing on the fence, and like that's the whole reason I did it. I wanted my kids to see their dad as a race car driver and not as a spotter. Um, so yeah, once once I did that burnout and got out, see my kids standing there, like it sunk in immediately. Amazing, that's amazing. That's that's the stuff that dreams are made of for a race car driver, literally, right? And you lived it. Yep, for sure. Yeah, yeah. my goal was to to get interviewed on the front stretch. They interview the top three guys after the race, so I figured he wasn't going to be a uh, a field filler if you're on the front straightaway, and, and lo and behold, we were getting to pick up the big trophy. That's right. That's right. So how's Joey as a spotter? He's got some room for improvement? I tell you what, he's a much better driver than he is spotter, but you know what? He's still really good. Uh, I, I don't expect Joey to hang up his driver and helmet and grab a radio anytime no. soon, but if I'm ever in the driver's seat, he's my spotter. I love that. I love that. All right, a couple more things here, and I'll let you run. If, uh, if you're watching the Xfinity races, especially when Joey's in the booth, you may recognize Coleman's voice and his face because you, my friend, are a big-time television star. Uh, how did the opportunity to broadcast with Fox for when Joey's in the booth and sometimes when he's not, I think, you're atop the spotter stand, you got the Fox microphone on you, and you provide some really, really great analysis from atop the spotter stand. How did that all come together for you? Yeah, it's uh, it come from an idea with Joey. Um, you know, he kind of pitched it to them at Daytona going into the first race last year saying how cool would it be to kind of get this perspective um so I was supposed to do one race last year and that was going to be the first Xfinity race at Daytona and we got a lot of cool feedback from it and, and a lot of positive feedback so uh luckily last year the Fox folks asked me to come back for another I think I ended up doing close to 10 races last year yeah. and uh, I got another I think eight to ten this year as well um, so it, it all come from a, from a pitch from a friend cause he thought it'd be cool. And, uh, yeah, it, it's something I never necessarily thought about doing. Uh, I've always kind of been behind the camera type guy and, and you know, don't like my face being seen or my voice heard. Um, <laughs> but you know, at the same point, I love the sport. I, I want, you know, not only old fans to, to figure out something new, I want to bring in new fans, the new generation of fans, um, so any aspect that I can give that, you know, is not being covered, I always just try to bring to the TV and, and try to explain, explain from a deeper level instead of just seeing it and hear Joey and the drivers in the booth talk about it. Let's talk about it from another perspective and, and just show them that, you know, there's more to the, to the broadcast and just the drivers going out there and going fast. It's a team atmosphere. Yeah. Um, there's a bunch of different links pulling the chain to make it work. You do a great job of it. And we have a saying in the radio business, you, you have a face for radio. I, for one, do. You clearly do not since you're a big-time television star. So just marinate on that, Coleman. <laughs> yeah, they only show me on camera one time, so I haven't quite got the beauty <laughs> to be on camera all the time. I was going to say, do they put makeup on you? Because they do that in television. It's not, like, weird. It's, like, 
standard practice. They do it for Joey. They do it for Suarez. They do it for everybody. They don't do it for you atop the atop the roof. No, I'm all natural, and that's the last thing I can do. You know how much grief I would catch from all the other spotters if they're up there putting makeup on me beforehand. So I oh, got yeah. I got to keep some street cred. <laughs> there may or may not be another podcast with some of your counterparts that may give you endless crap for that. So I think you're yep. I think you're in the clear. Yep. <laughs> um, last thing, which is the better hot dog? Martinsville Speedway or Celebrities? Oh, Celebrity Hot Dogs by far. Yeah, 100%. Uh, How did I know you were going to say that? Huh? Yeah. Wow. yeah, it's a great hot dog joint. You know, uh, it's uh, it's legit. It's only a mile from my house. And before my diet, I was clear quite a bit. So, um, you know, for anyone that doesn't know, my dad started a hot dog restaurant. Um, really, I think it was like the last year he was racing. That was kind of like always our thing on the road. We'd always go find the local hot dog joint. And he said, once I retire, I'm open up a hot dog joint. And so he did that, and heck, he's up there most every day during lunch running the cash register. So if you ever want to go see Robert Presley and where is he now, he's he's behind a cash register ringing up hot dogs. I've never been. I've had my Martinsville hot dogs. I've had my fair share of them, but I have heard the legend of the celebrities' hot dogs. So I need to get my ass down there, and I need to try some, and I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell your dad that his son sent me. Yeah, tell him he sent you, and he'll give you the discount, which is probably about paying double. <laughs> hey everybody's got to make a living somehow right that's right uh coleman thank you so much man it's been a thrill uh getting to know you a little bit better here today but even just being in victory lane with you last year while uh while you were celebrating joey's title i remember we had a moment we just like locked eyes your eyes got real big you're like look at me i'm here i'm like you're here man you made it so congratulations on all the success congratulations on the win in atlanta good luck this weekend at coda and I'm sure we'll be chatting soon, hopefully in victory lane down the road soon, my friend. I appreciate you. Appreciate everything you do. Good luck in your coaching. Thank you. And we are back. Woo. Thank you so much to Coleman for carving out so much time on a busy week off of a win. He's got softball practice to go to. He's got Coda to finish prepping for. He's got a flight to catch. He's got a lot going on, as do we all. But I appreciate him carving out some time for me this week on the show is great to catch up with him i've had him on a couple other shows over the years but have never had him on victory lane until now so coleman i appreciate your time man and also thank you to drew taylor of team penske for helping coordinate that conversation as well and while we're on the topic of coleman Presley, let's talk about what he and his driver accomplished at atlanta motor speedway 22 team obviously wins the race the first win of the year for them first win of the year for ford First win for Joey at Atlanta, and you heard Coleman talk about why that's so special to Joey and him, given that they spent a lot of time at Atlanta Motor Speedway and really called that their second home in their backyard. That was really cool to see because you think Joey Logano's won pretty much everywhere at this point, and he's probably got another decade or so behind the driver's seat. I think the list as it currently stands, which includes Chicago and includes North Wilkesboro, He's not one at only nine tracks, and a couple of those have been added to the schedule recently when it comes to Coda, the Charlotte Roval, uh, Nashville, to name a couple. So he's got a few more to check off his list, but the fact that he is where he is right now in his career and has won as much as he has, I think that says a lot. And just to kind of put a bow on Atlanta, the, the jobs that these spotters do is just incredible. It is insane and one thing that I wish I could have asked Coleman but we ran out of time was how the job has evolved 
over the years. Because I, I remember what Chris Lambert told me last year, probably, is that you know the, the job evolves, as does any. But in spotting, it's very different just because of the technology that's kind of associated with it. Coleman's been doing it for eight years. Lambert's been doing it for longer than that. But I'm curious how he has seen the job evolve atop the spotter stand. He did a damn good job of it, though, on Sunday, helping guide Joey to the win, racing against his former teammate and his former driver, Brad Keselowski. That was a really cool sight to see. And I wholeheartedly agree with what Brad Keselowski said after the race. He basically said, hey, you know, for all you guys that think that there has to be a wreck to the finish or people got to wreck each other, what we just did shows you that we can race respectfully, we can race clean, and more, but most of all, we can race hard. You can race hard, respectfully, and clean all at the same time, and it doesn't need to involve crashing cars, junking everybody's stuff, and costing everybody a lot of money. I think that was great, especially with the backdrop of what we saw on Saturday and Sunday with Trucks and Xfinity, which was a absolute wreck fest, and I would say borderline you-know-what show. Sunday, the racing wasn't necessarily amazing for the entire race, but those final 45-50 laps, man, I challenge you to find me something better than that. And the circus rolls on to Circuit of the Americas this weekend for the NASCAR Cup Series and Xfinity and Truck Series race at Coda in Austin, Texas. I really wanted to get out there this year for that race because I just hear so many good things about that racetrack and the facility. It's so top-notch. It's state-of-the-art, yada, yada, yada. It's Formula One caliber, which is obviously why they race there. Was not in the cards for me this year, unfortunately, but hope to get out there next year. Part of the reason why I wanted to go this year really badly, though, is because of the field. I mean, there are so many eclectic drivers from different backgrounds that are not accustomed to racing in NASCAR that are going to be in the field. Let's start off with Project 91. Kimi Raikkonen is back for his second go-around in the Cup Series. Started at Watkins Glen last year, got involved in a wreck and did not have a good finish, but he's back for more again at the site of his last win in Formula One competition at Circuit of the Americas. So he's back for Trackhouse in the 91. Jordan Taylor is making his NASCAR Cup Series debut in the 9, filling in for Chase Elliott. He's obviously an IMSA champion, has won Le Mans. He's won the Rolex 24. He's a multi-time champion in sports car racing for Wayne Taylor Racing. I'm really excited to see what he can do because out of the drivers that are racing in this event, he is the one in the best equipment. And I think he's also the one with the most tangential experience when it comes to a sports car versus F1 versus an Indy car, et cetera, et cetera. Jordan Taylor, if he's available, is definitely going to be in my fantasy lineup. I don't think he's going to win the race, but I think that he really is going to show a lot of people that he has what it takes to compete with the top guys in the Cup Series on a road course. So I'm going to be watching him in the nine. So we talked about Kimmy. We talked about Jordan. Don't forget Connor Daly, who's back with the money team. He obviously has some road course prowess from his open wheel days. He's running a full IndyCar schedule this season, but in addition to the Daytona 500 that they qualified for earlier this year, he is going to be returning to the 50 for the money team at Coda. Jensen Button, 2009 Formula One world champion. He's going to be making his NASCAR debut as well. Going to be in a Rick Ware racing car, the 15, which is guaranteed entry because of that charter. But that car is going to be prepared by Stuart Haas Racing. So even though Jordan Taylor is going to be in really top-notch equipment, you can say that Jensen Button is also 
going to be in top-notch stuff as well. So I'm interested to see how he does in his first NASCAR start. Reminder, he is working with Garage 56 for Le Mans later this year, as is Jordan Taylor. He's not going to be driving, but Jordan's been helping with the development of everything. So they'll have an upper hand from that perspective, even though the Garage 56 car is not exactly the same as a current next-gen Cup Series car. Oh, by the way, did I mention seven-time Cup Series champion and my greatest of all time, Jimmy Johnson, is going to be in the race as well uh, with the 84 for Legacy Motor Club. There are so many storylines that are surrounding this race. You have two Formula One champions. You have a seven-time NASCAR champion. You have a multi-time, I think, four-time IMSA champion, Jimmy Kimmy, Jordan, and Jensen. It's like the fearsome foursome. I love it. I, I cannot wait to see how they... How they do, and even if they don't do that well, just to have them in the race is a shot in the arm for NASCAR. It's a shot in the arm for motorsports. I love crossovers. I love cross-pollination, and we say it all the time, but a rising tide raises all ships. I think that is super, super correct in this instance because you're going to have Formula One fans tuning in, IndyCar fans tuning in, IMSA fans tuning in to this NASCAR race, and hopefully when those drivers go back to their respective series. NASCAR fans will tune in to watch Jordan Taylor or maybe watch F1 or IndyCar Connor Daly for the month of May. So I think a rising tide lifts all boats. That is very apropos here. And that'll wrap things up for this episode of Victory Lane Party People. I appreciate your time this week and every single week. I appreciate you listening and your loyalty. And I appreciate you spreading the word if you would be so kind. If you've done so already, I humbly thank you. And if you have not, please consider doing the following. Leaving a rating and a review on iTunes, subscribing there as well. And you can also get the podcast wherever you get your podcast. It should be available on any player of your choice. And if we're not, please let me know. Drop me a line and I will try to rectify that issue for you. We're a one-man band over here. I produce, I direct, I write, I edit, I do, I do everything. So give me a little leeway if we're not where you get your podcast. I'll try to help out and rectify that issue. Just you got to let me know because I can only see so much and do so much. As a reminder, this weekend's racing, all of it from Coda. It's on Sirius XM NASCAR Radio Channel 90. MRN's got the trucks. PRN has Xfinity and the Cup Series. We got pre-race coverage. We got post-race coverage. We got it all going on for you on your home for NASCAR, Sirius XM NASCAR Radio Channel 90. Loose ends hitting the air this weekend as well. If you missed a lot of what we had on the channel this week, that is the best of show. I encourage you guys to check that out. I heard the host there is doing a great job. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, because it's me. Just kidding, but that'd be cool if you listened. Um, we'll be back next week with another episode, another guest from the world of NASCAR. We'll help recap Coda and preview the action track, even though it hasn't really been for the last few years. Richmond Raceway. I'll be headed out that way come next week. But I will talk, and I will talk to you guys right here again in one week's time. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great weekend.